Hey, good morning. Um, good to be with you this morning. Uh, if you're new, we're really glad that you're here. Um, if you've got your Bible, make your way to Micah chapter 2. Micah chapter 2. If you grabbed one of those black hardback Bibles on your way in, uh, it's on page 728. And if you grabbed one of those Bibles, or if you don't have one and you want one, uh, just raise your hand. Evan will bring you one. Uh, and you keep that Bible. That's our gift to you as a church. We really love the Bible here. want you to be able to read it and engage with it uh, for yourself and uh, see really what we're talking about here this morning. Uh, well, there is a story in the Gospels towards the end of Jesus' ministry when he is about to be uh, handed over and crucified when he is teaching in the temple uh, during the last week of his ministry before the crucifixion, and the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, uh, are trying to trap him uh, and ask him questions so that they can trap him in one of his answers. And they're not able to do this. After a while, though, uh, one of the scribes, someone who was an expert in the Old Testament, who was schooled in the Old Testament, asked Jesus the question, uh, what is the greatest commandment? Like, what do we make, need to make sure we're really focusing on? What does God really require from us? And Jesus goes to two different places in the Old Testament. He says the first great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The entire Old Testament, all of the commands that God has given, the whole law can be summed up, and this is what God is asking of us, to love Him with everything that we are, uh, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Well, last week in Micah chapter 1, we saw that the people of God were not doing this. They were not loving God with all that they are. They had instead turned aside to idols. We saw how uh, they, and so often we, we, we replace God with idols and other gods, and we go and begin to worship them and privilege those uh, and begin to love those things above all else in our lives. And now, uh, here in chapter 2, Micah is going to turn to our neighbors and to show us that when you fail to love God, when you begin to walk in idolatry, you don't just fail to love God, you will always fail to love your neighbor as well. When you break the first great commandment, you will always end up breaking the second. He's going to show us that idolatry leads to injustice uh, and to oppressing our neighbors. And, and just like last week, Micah wants to really wake us up to this reality and show us where we've sinned and where we need to repent so that we might uh, turn away from it and, and come back to Jesus. And so let's see this together. We're going to read all of Micah chapter 2. So starting in verse 1, the very word of God to us today speaks to us like this. It says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses, and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to an apostate, he allots our field. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. 
Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these His deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest, because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I'll preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Let me pray for God's help on our time together. God, would you, would you bless your word as we talk about what you're calling us to, what you're exposing in us, and the hope you're giving us uh, in these words from Micah chapter 2. Would you, Holy Spirit, illuminate and give light to the word that you inspire Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Would you give us hearts that don't put up defenses to to think that this is really a sermon about somebody else? Would Would you give us hearts that instead would sit with the weight of what this text is saying about us and about the ways we've sinned and turned away from you? God, I pray that that in doing that we would find the freedom to repent and see you as better and come to you. Help us to see Jesus for as glorious and as beautiful and as all-satisfying as he is. I pray that you would. In your name, amen. And well, Micah begins this passage by saying, woe, woe to a specific group of people. And woe uh, is a curse. It's a way to say that, that judgment is coming, that you're going to be cursed, and, and that You need to repent of that, and you need to turn away from that, or this is headed for you. And so, uh, what are they going to be cursed for? Well, Micah says, the the woe is upon those who devise wickedness in their beds, uh, and then uh, perform the plan that they had made in the morning. And so, if you think about the things that keep you up at night, uh, it's usually things that are pretty close to your heart, things that are pretty important to you, right? I mean... All of us have known sleepless nights because we've got a really big day up ahead of us and we're nervous and we've got our adrenaline running about what we're going to do or say in the, the meeting or the training the next day or if you're still in school, what you're going to do in the game or the performance or the test and uh, we've got our adrenaline running trying to plan out and imagine that whole scenario and we can't sleep or uh, sometimes it's that there's a strain in a relationship or, or one of our kids is struggling and we don't know how to fix it. And so we lay awake, sleepless in bed at night, just trying to rack our brains with what can I do to fix this? What can I do to help this? Is this ever going to get better? The, the things that keep us up at night are the things that are really close to our heart, the things that are really important to us. And Mike is saying for these guys, uh, it's planning out how they can better oppress people. 
He says they're up all night dreaming and planning about how they can better steal from people and take from them. And then they're up and at them early in the morning to go put their plan into action. Just because they can. Just because they have the power to. Just because it's in the power of their hand, as verse 1 says. Micah says they, they covet other people's fields. They want what they don't have and what other people have. So they oppress people and they take it because they can. They take people's house, they take their inheritance and their land away from them. Uh, one of the reasons the book of Joshua spends so much time uh, and, and spends so much time talking about the way that once they get into the promised land, the, the land is divided up between the 12 tribes of Israel so that every tribe and every person has, has land in the promised land is because this was a tangible aspect of God's covenant with His people. This was a tangible reminder of His promise that He was going to be faithful to His people, that He was going to give them the land. And so you owning land and you having an inheritance as an Israelite was a way to say, I truly belong to this people. God's promises are for me. God is my God. I am His people. I'm a part of this covenant. That's why you passed it on to your children after you and gave them this inheritance to say, they're part of this covenant as well. God is their God. They will be His people. But, but these Israelites, these wicked Israelites, are oppressing their neighbors by taking their houses and their land away from them, robbing them of their inheritance, cutting them off from the promises of God, trying to cut them off from God's people. And so God says because of that, He's going to judge them. In verse 1, it said these wicked people are devising wickedness while they're on their beds. So notice verse 3, God says He's going to devise disaster against them. They're scheming and plotting about how they can better oppress people and commit more injustice. So God's going to scheme and plot about how He can judge them and destroy them for that. He says the judgment He's going to bring on them is going to crush them. It will be like a bar that they can't get out from under, uh, under of. They can't uh, lift up their heads. He's going to break their pride so that they stop walking so haughtily after this. And He says when this happens, when He brings judgment, uh, that people, probably the people that are going to take the Israelites into exile... He says they're going to mock you and they're going to take up a song against you and they're going to taunt you. They're going to act like they're you and they're going to sing and they're going to moan and they're going to say, oh my gosh, we're so ruined. God has turned away from us. God's abandoned us. He's taken away all our land and He's given it to a pagan. He's given it to a Gentile. God's going to do what they did to their neighbors. He's going to take their land away from them and give it to someone else that they stole and and then notice verse 5, God says when He brings His people back from exile, when He brings them back into the promised land, these people that stole their fellow neighbor's land, not only are they not going to have the land that they stole, they're not going to have any land at all. They're going to be cut off from God's people, cut off from God's promises. They won't have any of this inheritance. And so, God is going to judge these people for the way that they are oppressing and committing injustice against their neighbors. Now, don't take yourself out of the story here because while most of us are not in real estate and most of us probably don't have the temptation and we all definitely don't have the ability to steal other people's houses from them, that's really not the primary issue that God is addressing here. That's the fruit. God is addressing the root because Notice what this starts with in verse 4. It's in verse 2. Sorry, it says they, they covet. 
This is what it starts with. They covet. They want something that, that they don't have that God has not given to them. And so they have the power to take it, so they put a plan into action as to how they can take it from their neighbors so that they can have it for themselves. It, it all starts with coveting, with this sinful desire to have what you don't have and what God has not given you in a way that leads you to oppress others to get it. And, and Micah 2 is just showing us that this is always the pattern, that when you covet something, you, you eventually begin to oppress people and commit injustice against other people because they stand in the way uh, of having and getting what you want. And, and listen, all of us are doing this. This affects all of us. For example, think, think of how so much of our economy works. Our economy is really driven by coveting because advertisers and marketers know that we are not fundamentally people who make our decisions by sitting down and writing out a pros and cons list and just thinking rationally about what we want to do. They know and understand, sometimes better than we do, that we are fundamentally people who are driven by our desires, by what we love, by what appeals to our imagination and calls that out in us. And so advertisers and marketing appeal to our desires and they appeal to our covenant. You know, it's not enough for Hardee's, for Carl's Jr. To, to say, hey, we think we make pretty good burgers, and if you come to our store, we think that you'll like our burgers too. Now, they've got to have these ridiculous commercials with half-naked women showcasing their burgers to appeal to men and to say, hey, if you come and eat at Carl's Jr., you might get a woman like this. She might even come with the burger. She won't. Uh, Lincoln, you know, Lincoln, it's not enough for Lincoln to say, hey, we think we make pretty good cars. Well, here's, here's a pros and cons list of uh, some information about our vehicles and why they, they might be a better fit for you than what you're driving right now. Uh, instead, they give you a commercial to say, hey, if you drive a Lincoln, you can be kind of cool and mysterious like Matthew McConaughey. You know, advertisers appeal to our desires. They don't just give you commercials that are a PowerPoint slide of all the information about their product. They, they appeal to your desires to be able to say, hey, I, that they'll, they'll do these commercials, so you'll say, man, I, I don't have that, but my car's nice, but it's not nice like that. Maybe I really do need that. Maybe we can move some stuff around in the budget so that I can get that. Or I, I know I've only had this iPhone for a year, but, but did you see the new Apple Keynote? I mean, this new iPhone is going to make mine obsolete, and, and this new VR headset, I mean, this is the future. I'm going to have to get along with it and get one of these, and I don't know that my old iPhone is going to sync up with this VR headset, so I've got to go ahead and get a new one. Advertisers know they can appeal to your desires and give you a picture of happiness and the good life and, and get you to think, man, I, I don't have that. Something in my life is lacking. I don't have the good life. But, but it's just because I don't have that. Maybe if I get that, I really will feel better. I really will uh, have the good life and be one step closer to it. And, and listen, all of us know that that's so stupid, that, that buying these things is not actually going to uh, bring us happiness, but we still do it anyway because we cannot escape the fact that we are ruled and driven by our desires, by our loves, by whatever vision of the good life our imagination has been captured by. Look, you, you cannot escape the fact that you live by your desires. You can't get rid of your desires. You can only redirect them. 
Uh, But the problem is that we are being discipled 24 hours a day, seven days a week to direct those desires into consumerism, into the belief that, that the good life is found in getting one more thing and having just a little bit more stuff. We are discipled into the belief that the key to happiness is accumulating and consuming more things because so much of what we're discipled to believe is that consuming is actually how you build out your identity. What shows you watch, what your style of clothing or home decoration is, your brand loyalty, uh, how nice your stuff is, what you like and and don't like. Advertisers know they can appeal to these things, and the world is always going to play to your coveting and and to show you, hey, there is something missing in your life. You You really do have some lack. You really don't have the good life. I mean, you're unhappy, are you not? But it's only because you don't have this. If you just get this, you will be happy. You will feel better. The the world always gives you a way to uh, fulfill those desires of coveting and consuming that you have because the world is always going to give you more to consume. You know, because when you're bored, when you do feel that, that, that sort of flatness, like life is just a little bit flat or there's something lacking, there's something missing... There's always another show that you can watch to numb yourself and distract yourself from that feeling. There's always something else you can check on your phone. And whenever you see somebody else's life that has some things that you don't and you want that and you begin to covet and you feel bad about yourself, well, you can always get on your phone and do some online shopping and buy something from the comfort of your couch and it really will make you feel better for a while. It'll give you that dopamine hit that really distracts you from this for a while. Like, we really have the ability to give free reign to our coveting as much as we want to in our society, and, and we take that as much as we can. Coveting is really uh, our national pastime as American. And that coveting leads us to oppress and commit injustice against others. And, and look, before you put the defenses up, before you say, yeah, I... That's not me. Like, I'm not doing what the people in Micah here are doing. I'm not stealing other people's houses. I'm not robbing people. Uh, What I'm doing just affects me. It doesn't affect anybody else. Hear me, that's just a lie that we tell ourselves so that we can continue to covet without feeling guilty about it. Listen to what James 4 says, echoing and kind of drawing on Micah chapter 2. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So notice what James said there. He said, you covet, you want something that you don't have, and you can't get it, so you fight and you quarrel about it. Have you ever noticed when you go over to somebody's house, and their house is nicer and it's bigger than yours, and and you covet it? You start to feel bad that you don't live in a house like this, and you want to live in a house like this, and you wish you did, and and then you go home and you look on Zillow uh, at how much their house costs, and then you start to think of all the reasons why they're actually sinful for spending, that money, spending all that money on a house and all the reasons why you're so much better than them. 
you know, at, at least we tithe. I bet they don't even give. You know, or, you know, hey, at least our kids aren't going to grow up spoiled living in a house like that. Or, or think about how you're scrolling through social media and you see pictures of a trip that somebody has taken, a vacation that you want to go on and you haven't been able to go on, and, and you think, man, that's just like them. That's just so lavish. It's so over the top. That's such a waste of money. I mean, they're the type of people that do that. I wish we could have a vacation like that, but you know, it, it, not everybody's made out of money like they are. It must be nice to be made out of money like that. It must be really nice. Think about how you scroll through social media and you see somebody doing something or having something that you want to do or have and you, don't, you haven't done, you, you don't have, and you judge them. Do you not? I mean, she's so pretentious. She... She just feels like she's got to show everybody how much better her life is than everybody else's. You judge them, you covet, and that leads you to oppress them. When you do this, when you give free reign to your coveting and you don't check it and you just let it go as far as it can, I promise you that you will begin to oppress and commit injustice against that person that you're coveting their stuff uh, as much as you have the ability to, as much as it's in the power of your hand, as verse 1 says. Like if you work with them, you will cut them off from opportunities at work if you have the ability to do that. If you're friends with them, you will slowly stop inviting them to things and you'll cut them off relationally. You'll start dropping little gossips and slanders about them in conversation because, you know, it's not enough for you to know how awful they are. Everybody else around them has to know as well you'll start to have this growing bitterness and hatred towards them in your heart because they have what you want and what you don't have, and that must mean they're sinful for that, and they stand in the way of you getting the life that you really want. When we covet like this, it always leads to oppression against our neighbors as much as we have the ability to do so. When you stop loving God above everything else, you cannot help yourself from beginning to hate your neighbor as well. Idolatry leads to injustice and to oppression. It leads you to oppress others. And as Micah 2 is showing us, that deserves judgment. And God is going to execute judgment on that. You know, I know if we actually sit with this, this is not really a, a fun reality to talk about. Nobody really wants to come to church and, and hear about how awful and wicked their heart is. And Micah actually understands that. He, he was getting some of the same pushback that, that our defenses are up right now with. Look at what he says again uh, in verse 6. After he gives this message, he says, Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. So Micah is saying, all, all these people, these false prophets especially, who are hearing Micah's message are saying, Micah, Stop preaching about all this. Stop talking about all that judgment stuff. Don't you realize we're children of Abraham? We're the people of God. God has made promises to us. This is not going to happen to us. God is not going to judge us. Micah, why don't you ever talk about any of the good things that we're doing? Why are you so obsessed with talking about our sin? I mean, this is not going to happen. Judgment is not going to come for us. And look at what God through the prophet Micah, says to these people who are saying this in verse 7, he says, should you guys really say this? Like, am I the one who has changed my character? Am I the one who's doing all these wicked things and committing injustice? 
My words give life to people who simply trust me and walk in my ways. If you just listened to what I said and walked in my ways, you would have nothing to fear. But, but that's not what God's people are doing, is it? Verse 8 says, instead, they've made themselves God's enemies by rebelling against His commandments. He says when foreigners come through the land of Israel and Judah, when people are just traveling through, not just trusting that they're going to be able to travel through safely. They're not looking to start a war. They're not looking to provoke. They're not looking to do anything like that. He says, you guys, when they come through, you jump them, you take all of their stuff, and you oppress them as well. You, you take, you rob widows of their houses and the only means of uh, financial stability and inheritance that they had, and you take the inheritance away from their children. You try to cut their children off from the promises of God. And so verse 10 says, because of this, God tells them, you need to get up and leave the promised land. You're, you're going to in the exile because this land that was supposed to be a place of rest, this land that was supposed to be the place where God's people lived in God's place, living under God's rule, experiencing God's presence and blessing, this place that was supposed to be a haven for rest and for life with God, has instead turned into the exact opposite of that. They've defiled the land with their injustice, and they've made it really a den of robbers. It would be like having to live in a house with no front door. People could just come in and do whatever they want whenever they please. This is what they've done to the land. And, and then I love what Micah says about this uh, in verse 11. He says, if somebody came to you and started telling you like, yeah, I'll preach to you guys about wine and beer, uh, he'd be your favorite preacher. You guys would be breaking down the doors to go to his church. What Micah is saying is he's saying what you guys want is not somebody who tells you the truth. What you want is somebody who's a windbag who's full of hot air and will lie to you and puff you up with hot air about how awesome you are. Wine and strong drink are symbols of prosperity. And so what Micah is saying, he's saying you guys want somebody who will preach to you a prosperity gospel who will talk about how awesome you are, who won't talk about your sin, won't talk about God's judgment, won't talk about the fact that exile is coming for you, who will instead just talk about, hey, you're great, your life is great, everything is great, God's going to continue to bless you, you have nothing to worry about, so let's just all get drunk and have a good time. Let's have a party and celebrate how awesome everything in our life is. And Micah's saying, this is what we want. Now, while most of us would reject the prosperity gospel when it comes out explicitly from a person like Joel Osteen, and it says, if you just follow God, if you're just obedient to Him, and if you just give, then God will bless you with, with health. You're not going to get sick. Bad things are not going to happen to you, and you're going to get rich. God's going to bless you financially. You're going to be happy, wealthy, and wise uh, and, and healthy because of uh, your obedience to God. Well, I think most of us would probably reject the prosperity gospel when it comes to us that explicitly. That does not mean that we don't all have a little bit of belief in the prosperity gospel in us. We do. Because all of us believe to some level or another that if we follow God, if we're obedient to Him, then God is obligated to give us a pretty good life in return. And look, we're Americans. We think that anything that is wrong in our lives can be fixed if we just apply a little bit of ingenuity and elbow grease to it. 
And and so we love uh, preaching that has this sort of can-do attitude that tells you, yeah, you're already pretty great, and anything that's off in your life, you can fix it on your own, and you can fix it this week. You can do it. I know you can. I mean, just ask yourself, what, what sort of preaching would you rather come to church and hear? Micah's sort of message that tells you, hey, you are so wicked, and your heart is so full of coveting that you are going to oppress and commit injustice against your neighbors as much as you have the capability to. Uh, you're going to destroy yourself, drag down everyone you can with you, and then you're going to be at the end of all of that judged by God for it if you don't repent of this sin. Would you rather hear that or would you rather hear a message that says, hey, you know, your life is already pretty great. You're already pretty great. You're just a few ticks off in this one area. But if you just apply a few principles right here to marriage or to your work, like you'll really, you'll get back on track, you'll optimize your life, and everything will be going swimmingly again. I can tell you which of those two sermons I would prefer to hear. And we prefer that second one. We prefer the lighter prosperity gospel sort of message because most of us just really do not actually believe that we're sinners. Most of us think that the good things that we do outweigh the bad things that we do. Most of us think that at the core of who we are, we are fundamentally good people who sometimes act out of character and do some bad things. But we do not think that, that because, of our sin, because of the brokenness of the fall, that we are people who are fundamentally broken by sin and enslaved to sinful desires like coveting and like this. But, but Micah is saying when we believe those lies, when we listen to those messages that the prosperity gospel is preaching to us, uh, then, then we're lying to ourselves. We're believing lies. You know, you could put a leash on a lion and bring it into your backyard and call it your pet, but that does not change the fact that the first time it gets the opportunity, it is going to maul you. Because lions can be a lot of different things, but one thing they cannot be is a pet, and no matter how hard you try to make them be a pet, you're not going to be able to deny that reality for very long. You know, we can... We can deny this reality. We can say, yeah, our sin's really not that bad. We're really not that bad. It's not that big of a deal. God's not going to care that much about it. But that's all we're doing. We're lying to ourselves. We are denying reality. And as much as we might try to deny reality, it doesn't change the fact that our sin really is this bad, that our hearts really are this filled with coveting, and that God really is going to execute judgment on those who oppress and commit injustice against their neighbors. Like This is coming. This is reality. And so listen, if you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, from this text, I just need to warn you, if you, unless you repent of your sin and come to Jesus, And this judgment of God, this is coming for you. Do you really want to take your chances and say, well, if there is a God, you know, I'm a pretty good person, so I'm sure he'll probably forgive me in the end. I mean, I I do a lot of good things. I'm I'm pretty good overall, and so if there is a God, if there is a heaven, I'm sure he'll let me in at the end. do Do you really want to take that chance? Because if there is a God... And if God is good, and if what Micah 2 just said about you is true, that your heart is filled with coveting, and that coveting leads you to oppress and commit injustice against image bearers that God has made and loves, 
Do you really think a good God is just going to say like, yeah, no big deal. I don't really care about that. Do you really think a good God is going to sweep that under the rug and act like you didn't do that? No. No. I I want you to wrestle with the question if you're not a follower of Jesus. Is it really wise for me to stake my eternal future, like eternity? That means without end. It it never stops. It never runs out. It's going to go on forever. Is it wise for me to stake my eternal future on how good of a person I think I am? And then if you are a follower of Jesus, I want to challenge you as well. I know uh, hearing a sermon like this, especially if you don't put the defenses up and, and think about how this is really about someone else, if you actually sit with this and recognize this text is talking about you talking about us. And I know a sermon like this is not very easy and enjoyable to hear, but hear me, God is exposing our sin because he loves us. God is exposing our sin so that he might heal it, but before he heals it, he does need to expose it first. It is good for us to see just how deeply sin runs in our hearts. It is good for us to see just how enslaved to this we can be and how much we can give ourselves over to this so that we'll run to freedom in the gospel. And when we see the depths of our sin, it just shows how the gospel is all the more beautiful and all the more freeing. Because notice the shift that this passage takes. We're about to read it again in verses 12 and 13. It's almost like these verses come out of nowhere. Uh, And this is a really frequent pattern in the prophets. You get these intense warnings of judgments that God's people might wake up to their sin and repent, followed up by these incredible promises of salvation and hope. Because with God, judgment is never the last word for his people. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Look at this promise that God gives in verses 12 and 13. He says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So three times God says, I will, I will, I will. My people are unfaithful. They're driven by coveting. They oppress and commit injustice against their neighbors. But I will bring them back. I will gather them. I will assemble them. I will take them out of exile and make them like a flock of sheep and lead them into luscious green pastures. I will be their shepherd and I will gather them as a shepherd gathers his flock once again. And notice how he's going to do this. He says in verse 13, there will be someone who comes who opens up the breach. That means makes a way, breaks open a way Uh, And so this person is going to come and he's going to make a way for them out of exile and out of judgment and out of captivity. Think of this like the Exodus when God's people were in slavery to the Egyptians and God took them out of slavery and then he made a breach. He opened up a way in the Red Sea so that they could cross through on dry ground and cross through into freedom. God is promising to again do that for his people here, to again make a way where there is no way and open up a way for them out of judgment and captivity into freedom. 
And, and who is it that's going to do this? Who is it that's going to open up this breach and make a way? Well, notice what it says at the end of verse 13. It says the king is the one who's going to do this. The king who passes on before them, he's going to be the one who leads them like a shepherd and gathers them and opens up the breach and makes a way uh, so that they can pass through the gate. And did you notice how Micah shows us and connects that the king that, that he's talking about is the Lord? This is how Hebrew poetry, uh, what we're reading right now, this is how Hebrew poetry works. It doesn't work based off of rhyming. Uh, it works based off of what's called parallelism, which is where the second of the lines uh, explains the first line by either expanding on it or contrasting something with it or giving a new angle or metaphor uh, to deepen uh, what the first line said. And that's what's going on here uh, at the end of verse 13. The first line, the king uh, passes on before them. The second line explains who that king is. The king who passes on before them is the Lord who is at their head. The Lord who is their leader. The Lord who's leading them out of exile. And so who is this that Micah is talking about? Micah is talking about somebody who will gather God's people like a shepherd, who will open up a way, who will be a human king from the line of David, and yet at the same time, it'll be the Lord. It will be the God of Israel, the God who created all things. And so who is Micah talking about here? Well, listen to some words from Jesus in John chapter 10, and tell me if this doesn't sound a whole lot like Micah chapter 2. John 10, it says, Jesus said, again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, for the sheep. And so Jesus is the king. He is the shepherd. He is the Lord that Micah 2 is promising. Micah chapter 2 is promising Jesus to us. Jesus is the good shepherd. All of us, his people, his sheep, we had all gone astray and turned to our own ways. So Jesus went to the cross to bring us home. He went to the cross, and just like He said He would in John 10, He laid down His life on the cross for us, for His sheep, and on the cross, He paid the debt for all of our sins, for all of our coveting, for all of our oppression, for all of our injustice, and He died as a sacrifice for His sheep in their place, and He died but, but just like he said he would in John 10, he did not stay dead. Three days later, he took his life back up again and rose from the dead. And in his resurrection, Jesus becomes the one who opens up the breach that Micah 2 is talking about. In his resurrection, Jesus breaks open a hole in death so that death would no longer enslave us. In His resurrection, Jesus opens up a hole in death so that death would no longer be a gate that is separating us from God. Instead, it would be a door that is opening us up into a deeper life and experience with God, a deeper fullness with Him. 
In his death and resurrection, Jesus opens up the prison doors of sin and death that we had freely locked ourselves into and leads us out as free men and free women. In his death and resurrection, Jesus becomes the door. He becomes the way out of our sin and the way into abundant eternal life because he is life. In his death and resurrection, he becomes the means to life itself. Jesus is where you go to find the abundant life. Jesus is where you go to be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is where you go to find the freedom of a life no longer enslaved to sin, instead the freedom of a life of real joy with Jesus. And I think we get a beautiful example of that here in Micah chapter 2 because Jesus is where you find freedom from coveting. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says that covetousness, coveting, is idolatry. And he says that because coveting is really making an accusation against God. It's saying that, that God is not good and that God is holding out on you because He has not given you something that you want and you don't have. It's an accusation against God that's saying, God, you're not good enough to satisfy me. We are driven to coveting because we're driven to discontentment with God. We don't think that God is good. We don't think that He can satisfy us. And we think that God is holding out on us. But the gospel will kill all of that discontentment and coveting because if you have Jesus, what do you actually lack? Romans 8.32, God says, Paul says, if God did not spare his son for us, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If you're in Jesus, you have everything that you need. In Jesus, you have the validation that you have spent your whole life looking for. The God of the whole universe has looked on your life and has justified you. He has counted you righteous and acceptable and favorable in His sight because of what Jesus has done. In Jesus, you have a meaning and purpose in life that suffering cannot take away from you because whatever suffering might take from you, it cannot take you out of Jesus' hand. In Jesus, you have a freedom and a joy that is not based on your circumstances because it's not dependent on your circumstances. It's dependent on Jesus, and you always have Him. You see, because Jesus died for our sins and rose from the grave to make us His own, now we can make the words of Psalm 23 our own. We can say, Jesus is my shepherd. I shall not want. There's nothing that I lack. There's nothing I need that He has not given me. Jesus makes me lie down in green pastures. Jesus leads me beside still waters. Jesus restores my soul. He leads me into abundant life. Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I have nothing to fear because Jesus has been there before me and Jesus is right there with me. Jesus' goodness and mercy will pursue me. It will hunt me down all the days of my life. And even the end of my life is not the end of my life because it's actually just the beginning. It's the beginning of eternal life with Jesus. That will drive out discontentment and coveting. When you are filled up with and satisfied with the good news of what you have and all that you have in Jesus... Discontentment just has less and less room to breathe in your heart. 
But again, I, I just want to remind you, this, this happens not at the level primarily of our thoughts. This happens primarily at the level of our desires. We are, again, not fundamentally people who think through and rationalize our way into all of our decisions. We are driven by our loves and our desires. We are driven by what captures us and what gives ourselves over to this. So you can't think your way out of coveting and discontentment. You have to be uh, you have to worship your way out of it. And just like you and I are habituated, there we're, we're discipled into consumerism and coveting and discontentment through these repeated practices and these repeated things that we're exposed to, all these advertisements and, and all these things that we do. In the same way, we need to be counter-discipled. We need to be rehabituated. We need new practices to help us uh, draw our hearts away from coveting and discontentment and, and draw them up to be satisfied in Jesus. We need new habits if we're going to walk in the good news that Jesus offers us. And so one of those habits, it's real easy, you're doing it already, uh, is attending the Sunday gathering. We believe that the Sunday gathering is the primary means of discipleship in your life as a follower of Jesus because the Sunday gathering is a place where we can immerse ourselves in these habits and practices that help disciple us towards Jesus. You know, it's why we do things. It's why we, we do things like encouraging you to, to come early and to stay late and to talk to people you don't know and seek to build up and encourage people that you do know and seek to serve and bless others here with your gifts because the more you engage in that practice, the more and more you're actually going to begin to believe and see that, that the good life is not actually found in just what I can get for me, myself, and I. The good life is actually found in giving of myself and serving others. That's why we take the Lord's Supper every week because it's this tactile, bodily reminder of what Jesus has done to save us. It gives us a bodily reminder and a visual reminder of the gospel. It's this habit that helps reform our desires as we taste and see that the Lord is good when we come to His table. It's why we confess the creeds because we're trying to get you to believe, no, this is actually the true story of the world. Who God is and what God has done for me, this is actually what's most real about my life. We sing because so often getting the truths of the gospel on your lips helps get them down into your heart. And it's why we seek to preach the gospel every week so that we would be re-centered on this true vision of the good life and the good news that Jesus offers us. And so really, one way to step into this and to be discipled away from consumerism and coveting and discontentment is just to attend the Sunday gathering as often as you can so that you can be immersed in and engaged in these habits that help disciple you towards greater faith and trust in Jesus. There are some other things we can do as well, though. One of those is, for many of us, this is going to look like identifying the things in our lives that stir up discontentment and stir up coveting, and then getting rid of those for a season to give ourselves some space to breathe and spend time with Jesus. And so, for example, like if Zillow is doing this for you, and you're not right now, like at this moment, in the process of looking for or needing to buy a house... It might be really wise for you to delete that app off your phone and get some accountability with somebody so that you can't look at it. You know, it's almost as if God knew we were going to do this when he gave the commandment. The very first part of that commandment is 
do not covet your neighbor's house. And so if Zillow is helping you break that commandment and covet your neighbor's house, why not get rid of it for a season and just give yourself some space to breathe and not be constantly bombarded with that temptation? Same thing with social media. Like if social media is doing this for you, just get off of it for a season. You don't need to be on there. You can send your family members pictures if they want them that bad. You can show your friends here at church on Sundays your pictures. Uh, And your high school friends, they're not even going to know uh, that you got off of social media if you get off of social media. And so, like, you don't have to do it. Why do it if it's going to just be a means that stirs up discontentment uh, and coveting in your life? And then another practice we can step into Before you do retail therapy, before you kind of impulse buy something to just make yourself feel better about yourself, just stop for a second and and kind of run through some questions and just ask yourself, like, am I buying this because I feel like this is going to make me content and happy? Am I buying this to fill up some lack that I feel like I have in myself? Am I buying this because it feels like my life has something missing? Don't just impulse buy interrogate your heart and ask, man, am I, have I gotten bored with Jesus? Have I just stopped trusting Jesus to satisfy me? Am I seeking to fix something by buying this that, that can't actually be fixed by buying this? See, we, we should walk in these practices because when we give ourselves over to coveting, we, we will give ourselves over to oppression and injustice as well. When you break the first commandment to love God with all that you are, you will begin to break the second and oppress your neighbor as well. But Jesus provides freedom from coveting and injustice and oppression. If you have Jesus, you have what you need. And so, as Hebrews 13 says, we can be content with what we have because Jesus has promised us. He has said to us, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And if you have Jesus, you have all that you need. Let me pray for us that we would believe this. Jesus, thank you for your word. Jesus, I confess that this wasn't the next text in the book. Um, this would be uh, a text that, that many of us, myself included, would prefer to just not talk about. We'd prefer to just not have to deal with the reality of of the ways we've given our hearts over to coveting and oppression of our neighbors. But Jesus, would you help us to see and believe that as dark and as deep as our sin might be, it is, not, it is no match for your grace. That you can provide freedom from the idolatry of coveting. You can provide freedom from the sins we've enslaved ourselves to. And you can provide freedom to live an abundant life. Jesus, help us to believe that you are the door, that through you we can be saved and go in and out and find pasture and abundant life. Help us to be satisfied in you, to walk in practices and means that help us to not grow bored with you, Jesus, to remind ourselves of the good news again and again. Thank you for the gifts that you give us here in corporate worship. Thank you for the Lord's Supper that we're about to take. God, would you use it in the way that you've promised to use it in our hearts and our lives. And would you strengthen our faith through the power of the Spirit as we take this meal. God, help us to walk in this. I pray that you would. In your name, amen.